0: Welcome to Waves of Change podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Lara. Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of Waves of Change podcast. So happy that you're here with us. Today, we have a great interview with Dr. Brooke Greasy from Judy's House, which is an organization celebrating its 20th anniversary that provides support to children and families grieving the loss of a loved one. Um, What I really love about Judy's House and what stuck out to me in this interview is how they really remove barriers um, to access their grief counseling and their care. Um, They've been running the organization out of a home just knowing that it would be a more comfortable environment for children and families. They also provide food for people who come in and just really makes a warm and welcoming environment. Sometimes I know it's hard to Accept health, especially like therapy and counseling. And I really love that um, they remove barriers to access. And, um, you know, most importantly, what I didn't mention is that also their services are all free, which is so wonderful. I also love that they're so intentional about providing quality and comprehensive counseling. Um, You know, Brooke mentions about how her husband, when he lost his mother, didn't really receive that quality, comprehensive grief counseling and how they are now um, very intentional in providing that um, to the children that they work with. And I really love that. I also love this is a theme with so many of the organizations that we talk to. And I think it's so important to call out that they are creating community among the people that they serve. I um you know when when a child loses someone close to them it can feel very isolating when their peers haven't lost you know say a parent or a caregiver or someone close and I think it's so important that they're creating community and connecting children with other children who have or are dealing with um, the loss of a loved one and I love that they're doing that um you know Brooke mentioned after our interview that. The children who have, they have children that have gone through their program and then became interns at Judy's house and are now grief counselors, which I just love. And it speaks so much to the community that they've created and the amazing work that they're doing. Something else I just want to point out is, and that Judy mentions a couple of times in this interview, is as a society, how we have to get better at addressing grief and dealing with grief and we speak about this briefly but um you know it's so so spot on what she says you know i personally have felt when i've had friends dealing with grief you just you want to show up for them you want to be there for them and i feel like sometimes we just we don't know how and i love that judy's house is helping um you know not just the denver community but across the country people um you know helping others to navigate through grief. Um, I love that they're doing doing that. So I really hope that you enjoy this conversation. Um, I think we'll have to have Brooke back on because I feel like there's so many amazing stories that we didn't touch and um, so much more about the wonderful work that Judy's house is doing. So I hope that you enjoy the interview and I'll let you get to it. Great. Well, thank you, Brooke, so much for being with us today. Um, I was hoping we could start by having you introduce yourself and the organization that you founded.
1: Thank you, Lizzie, for having me and um, for... For shining a light on Judy's House and JAG Institute and all of the great nonprofits that you highlight on your podcast. It's um, wonderful to be here with you. Um, My name is Brooke Greasy. I am a clinical psychologist and co-founder with my husband Brian Greasy of Judy's House and JAG Institute, which is a comprehensive bereavement center in the Metro Denver area in Colorado that we founded to help children and families who are grieving a death find connection and healing we're um, not only a direct service provider in our community, but we also provide uh, research and evaluation and training and education through JAG Institute, uh, which is um, also uh, named in memory of Brian's mom, who died when he was 12. Um, Brian's mom is uh, Judy, Judith Ann Greasy, and um, people always ask, who is Judy? And she's <laughs> the heart and soul and, and really the um, who we honor through this work.
0: Awesome. Thank you. I mean, speaking of Judy, could you describe how um, the organization came to be and what gave you the idea of starting it and how you founded it?
1: Sure. Um, You know, it's, I always like to think of Judy's house and, um, and the work we do there as, as being a series of love stories. And really that, that first love story that got this all started was my husband, Brian's love for his mom. Um, Judy was, um, one of the most compassionate and kind people that I've heard of. I didn't of course, get to meet her because she died when Brian was, was 12 of breast cancer. Um, but I know through him and through his family and friends that as a nurse and as a mother of three and, um, And just this very kind person in her community, she poured so much love into Brian that when she died, it was a tremendous loss for him and for his whole family and for his community. And so Brian at that time felt incredibly alone and, you know, so, so sad and and, um, a little lost and angry, most dangerously. He talks about how angry he felt Mm -hmm. that that his mom had died, that um, you know, the, the doctors in society hadn't been able to cure cancer. And, and Ingrid at himself, um, you know, he had as a 12 year old boy, those feelings of not having been a good enough son or, or not having done the right things. And so he sat with that guilt and anger and, and um, didn't know what to do with it. At that time, we didn't have grief support centers around the country. Um, and we were really a grief avoidance society. And, and still really are in many ways. but for a 12 year old boy um, in, a, in a family of, of boys and men, and actually his dad, Bob Greasy, had, had actually lost his own father when he was 10. So he did a tremendous job of rallying to support Brian and you know, having a consistent routine for him and having you know a set schedule for breakfast and, and, and doing all he could. and he even sent him to a counselor, which you know of course he wanted him to have every opportunity to find um, healing. But unfortunately at that time, the message that Brian got and that counseling was based on stages of grief, which we now know are, you know, kind of much more simplified than how grief really works. And he was told, you know, you'll feel this way and then that way, and then this way, and then, you know, you'll move on basically, Hmm. which wasn't accurate for anyone really, certainly not for a 12 year old boy. So fast forward a decade and he found himself um, with a platform as a football player in college. He learned about giving back through community service. And then when he found himself as a, um, as the quarterback of the Denver Broncos, he realized he had a platform that he could use to help ensure that other kids didn't feel alone with grief, like he did. And he wasn't quite sure what that would look like, um, but you know, already had that intention. And so <laughs> actually at his very first Preseason football game as a rookie. Um, I we had a mutual friend who I had kind of lured out to Colorado. Um, I was getting my PhD in clinical psychology at CU Boulder, um, and I had, had actually already decided to devote my career and my life to children who had experienced trauma, loss, and adversity, based on my own experiences as a child. Um, in a lower income community with few resources and with parents who are in the director of social services and a psychiatric nurse. So I had already set Mm -hmm. myself on a path to um, help children who had experienced that that great adversity and trauma and loss. Um, So when we met at his first game and became friends and again, fast forward a few years when we had our first real date, we had a conversation over dinner. Um, I was really grateful he didn't ask about football because I knew nothing about football. (laughs) I was a total nerd, um, but he asked if I could do anything for kids. What would I do? Which was such a great first date conversation. Right. I
0: love that. But it question. was a
1: conversation, yeah, and it was a conversation that that helped us both realize that we were very aligned in how we wanted to um, devote our life energy and our life's work to helping, helping kids. And I talked about how I wish, you know, I'd love to create a center that was in a comfortable home, like setting where kids and families could get all their needs met in one place, rather than having to bounce around the community and have it be really accessible care. And he said, gosh, you know, that sounds great. What's available like that for kids like me who have had a parent or a sibling or loved one die who who don't have a place to go and I was kind of dumbstruck because I was embarrassed that I didn't know I didn't know what was available that was not childhood bereavement was not an issue that was covered in my PhD clinical psych studies mm. it was not something that was really talked about in our community we started doing research we found that there are a few you know smaller hospice or church-based, peer support programs, but not a freestanding organization that was solely devoted to childhood bereavement. And it became clear to us that that was a real need in our community. We had no idea how big of a need, but, um, my husband being a quarterback and being, um, you know, someone who wants to get things done said, well, if it doesn't exist, cause he had planned to just support what was ever in existence. Right. So well, let's, let's get it going. So within a year, um, we you know, traveled around the country and visited other uh, peer support grief centers and um, got a sense of what was available nationally um, and bought a little house here in Denver and set up programs and really started with that peer support model and small, just a couple staff and a handful of us volunteers um, But quickly outgrew that first house, quickly realized there was a tremendous amount of need, and also quickly realized that the needs were more complex than than we were able to provide with that small volunteer-based organization and needed to grow pretty quickly. So that set us on a path of growing and um, raising more money, as I know you all know about (laughs) To be able to staff up and have um, a team of clinicians, um, counselors, professional counselors who could um, really provide a continuum of care. Um, And at this point, you know, we serve, you know, 1400 plus kids a year um, and and really meet them where they are in terms of where the family is and and can wrap around them. Not only with our groups, which still have a, a lovely element of peer support and connection with other kids their age, but also um, their therapy and um, more intensive counseling and family counseling for those who need more support, as well as you know, being able to really assess what their needs are. If there are crises or other stressors in their family, we can wrap them around with other services through our community partnerships and really help the families stay on a, on a positive trajectory as they navigate grief. So it's it's grown from that very small little house in Denver to. Um, we actually have outgrown our, our current um, two Victorian homes in um, Denver, and we're um, moving in next month into a brand new facility um, that's 26,000 square feet and has wow. more room for growth and for the, the tremendous amount of need that exists.
0: Love that. I love just um, how serendipitous your relationship with Brian is, too, being that you are getting your PhD in clinical psychology and he you know, lost his mother at a young age. Um, and then you, you formed this organization. It's a really beautiful story.
1: We, um, I joke, I joke that he might've married me for my degree, but then he, <laughs> then he quickly counters and says, well, maybe you married me for my platform. But the truth is we just feel really fortunate that we both, that we met each other, that we were brought right. together, that we've been able to share this life's work and, and to really kind of, um, join forces in that way for good. Um, but it's also been just a a life changing and enriching experience to, to build and create and grow and sustain an organization. Um, you know, for, from Brian's experience and his ability to, um, connect not only with the supporters of the organization, which of course we do, but with the kids, with the families that walk I always um, reflect on the first time I saw him sit in a circle of kids who had also lost someone who died, and since he didn't get to do that as a kid and wished Aww. able to, it was a it was a magical moment where I saw this light come on in his eyes as he as the kids were going around and saying who they were and who had died in their life, and and, and for him to say it out loud to these other kids who had some understanding of what it's like to lose someone at a young age. That was that powerful piece of connection that we we work so hard to foster and to um, make space for in our safe spaces at Judy's house so that kids can can share their stories and hear other stories and, and feel less alone with their grief. And it certainly was powerful for him 20 years ago when we started this work. But even today I know it's been a part of his meaning making and his healing and 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 really what we call post-traumatic growth in terms of finding a way to channel something devastating into something powerful and that that changes lives for others and helps others navigate. So I've been honored to be on that journey with him and to help yeah. create all of our programs and our research and be a part of that, and then to help share it nationally and, and internationally as well. Um, so yeah, we're, we're really grateful that we've had that opportunity. It's also brought us the most dear friends who are like family to us, the people who work at Judy's house, the people who volunteer at Judy's house, the people who, who support us financially and otherwise um, have become like family to us. And that to me is, has been one of the best parts of being part of the nonprofit world and this opportunity to bring people together for something bigger than ourselves to, that we hope will last for generations in our community and beyond.
0: Yeah. I love that. As you know, when someone's dealing with grief, it's hard as um, someone in their life to, to relate to that, but it's so important when um, they can connect with someone who, who literally can relate and have those experiences as you were speaking to about Brian sitting in that circle. Um, But could you touch on a little bit, the importance of, you know, why a child should receive professional grief counseling when dealing with the death of someone close
1: Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I think the first thing to understand is the prevalence. I mean, this is something that we've really worked to understand and to raise awareness about, because part of our mission is to elevate this issue as a, as a public priority. So first of all, although most kids feel very alone when someone in their life dies, it is actually quite prevalent. We, um, have developed what we call the Childhood bereavement Estimation Model, which is a report that we put out with support from the New York Life Foundation, which allows us to approximate how many kids locally, nationally, in our state, etc, um, are grieving and oh, we approximate, yeah, when we, um, according to our latest 2022 report, one in 13 US children will experience the death of a parent or a sibling by age 18, which is a drastic underestimate when you think of all the other important people in their lives that might die. But that's you know over 5.6 million kids, um, wow. and when you look up to age 25, which we serve ages three to 25, we capture those young adults as well and their parents and caregivers. That's astounding. You know, more than doubles when you look at those numbers. And those rates have gone up obviously uh, in the in the past few years. And we can talk more about that. But what what is important for people to understand is that Although death is a part of life, obviously it's a natural part of life and everyone will grieve at some point in their life. Most kids don't expect to lose a parent or sibling during childhood. It's, it's, it's not anticipated, even when there's a long illness and they have some sense that it's coming, it's still. Can be traumatic. It can be devastating to a family. It can um, can have a profound impact on them, on their on their system, and on and each individual in the family. And and without support, kids can um, develop unhealthy coping strategies, substance use, um, other um, unhealthy behaviors. They're at greater risk for depression, for anxiety, for suicidality, for trouble and difficulty in school, for relationship and social issues, behavior problems, aggression, even earlier mortality. Um, oh. and so it's, it's, it's not a small problem. It's actually many, many kids who, and families who need this kind of support Um, And fortunately, and we're very much a strengths-based organization where we focus on promoting resilience and growth and really helping to prevent some of those negative outcomes that those kids and families are at risk of developing. And we know how to do that, thankfully. We know how to empower children and their parents with healthy coping skills, with the tools and the opportunities, again, for sharing their story, for integrating the loss into their life finding ways to make meaning and to channel their grief into healthier outlets. So we're grateful that we have the support of our community and that nationally we're raising, um, not only awareness, but also the capacity to support kids in these meaningful ways so that they do stay on that healthy developmental trajectory. That is always the goal, um, for kids. Um, so it's, it's, um, It's gratifying to see the change that we see in kids. Um, Even through our 10-week program, we we provide a 10-week structured program called Pathfinders, which is a group-based model. And even in those 10 weeks, the kids in their own age-appropriate groups are connecting with each other and talking in ways that are appropriate to their age and their experience and the type of death they had. They're developing those skills. And, And meanwhile, their parents are in a parent and caregiver group where they are learning not only how to process their own grief, but how to support and parent their grieving child. So it's, it's really a whole family systems approach and a preventive approach that we feel, um, is effective, uh, not only for this incredibly difficult time in their life, but other challenges that are certain to come down the road, because right. as we know, grief is not, you know, over in, in succinct stages. There's no timeline for grief. It's something that kids and families, um, will experience in waves throughout their life. And so to be prepared for those waves, you know, a six-year-old grieves very differently at 16 when their dad is not there to teach them how to drive, or they're not there, their mother is not there for graduation, or um, they're, they're not there for their wedding. It's, it's different at different times in our life. And so right. to develop language and skills and coping strategies um, is, is really key to what we're Um, doing with our families individually, and then um, what we are sharing through education and training, um, not only of our workforce here in Denver, because we train interns and postgraduate trainees, um, sometimes up beyond a dozen, a year of them to really strengthen the workforce and make sure it's a more grief-informed behavioral health workforce, but we also go into the schools, because what we know is that kids spend most of their days in school. Right. Right. And so we want to strengthen the school's ability to wrap around the kids in a grief informed and sensitive way. And, you know, not, not be, not have a teacher who doesn't realize that, you know, a boy in her class lost his dad on father's day, say, okay, go ahead and make your father's day present without mm. being sensitive to right. There's so many triggers for kids and so many ways that they might um, get lost in you know, attention issues that are you know based in trauma or grief or struggles to to be socially engaged with peers that that maybe don't understand what they've been through or or you know don't know what to say to them, right? I mean, I think we have to help educate not only our educators and the adults that are in kids' lives, the pediatricians that interact with them, et cetera, but also the kids. You know, and that's something that we do through our school-based work, we provide groups at the schools for kids who are grieving. So um, if they're not able to get to Judy's house for our groups, they have our counselors come to them and and provide that kind of support and connection and and coping strategies there on site. But we also um, were doing groups for kids in the schools, uh, educating them around grief and loss and how to support peers Mm. and people in your life, which I think, again, goes to that um, goal that larger goal of of helping us be a, a more grief informed society um, more broadly, um, and you know unfortunately, COVID and this pandemic and all of the increases in in deaths and loss all that right. we've experienced over the last couple of years has certainly brought grief and death to the forefront right and. The the silver lining of that, if you will, is that people are talking about it more, that people are addressing it more so that um, people feel less alone as they're grieving because so many people were grieving the massive amounts of deaths that we saw during COVID. And um, more than 200,000 kids, um, we estimate, um, were bereaved of a parent during COVID. But again, that's such a drastic underestimate when you think of all the grandparents and other significant people in their lives. And not only to COVID, but during that time, we saw increases in deaths related to accidents, including drug overdoses. We saw increases in suicide deaths. We saw increases in gun violence and, um, and, and, and health, um, related deaths like diabetes that were not properly treated during this pandemic. So it's right. it's been a time of raised awareness and increased grief and more and more kids and families who are bereaved and so we feel um, even more you know urgency if you will around um, around sharing what we've learned over these 20 years and again creating more capacity to um, to serve more people directly and then through education and awareness um, put the tools in their hands
0: yeah that's wonderful um pretty logistical question but um for, some, for a child to, you know, go to Judy's house and um, be a part of programming, do you have a parameter of, um, you know, is it um, for a parent death? Could it be like if a grandparent passed or is it typically immediate family or, um, you know, what parameters do you have around that?
1: We really, um, we've, we've been really uh, intentional about having Judy's house have an easy door to walk through. So all of our services are free, which helps with that barrier to care. But yeah. we also want it to be equitable access to individualized care. And what I mean by that is, well, we, we have an open door for any kind of death loss. So really the only um, you know, everybody who comes to our doors is has had someone die in their life, but it can be anybody in their life. It, a majority of the kids um, have had a parent die, um, and it's it's usually over seventy percent of the kids have had a parent die. But also other caregivers, um, siblings, uh, you know, the brother mm. or sister. We do have people who come who are grieving um, grandparents. Often, it's when the grandparent was you know, a caregiver in their life, someone in their life. We sometimes have, we often have kids grieving, um, peers. Um, we have such an epidemic of, um, of, of youth suicide that unfortunately, um, we have, um, many groups it's, it's, it's sometimes a quarter of our population or more, Mm. um, sometimes closer to half that are, that are grieving a suicide or, or an overdose death, which, um, is, is even more difficult for many families because of the stigma and um, and sometimes the shame that they feel around that kind of a death and also the, the questions of why. And so right. it's part of why we have a trauma-informed model of care where our counselors are very adept at um, supporting people with those kinds of traumatic um, losses and, and really difficult grief journeys with um, with what they need. So like I said, You know we do care coordination throughout the time that families are with us and it is that whole family approach so that if one person in the family is really struggling with say trauma reactions maybe they witnessed the death or they were somehow more impacted Mm. we can provide them with individual therapy that's that's focused on those difficulties um, without preventing them from also being able to be in groups with other kids who have had a similar loss, because we do feel that that connection with peers is such a powerful part of healing for so many people. Um, so it's, um, we really do tailor it to what their needs are with that continuum of care.
0: I love that you, um, are intentional about removing the barriers to care. Cause I imagine it's hard enough to even walk through those doors and accept help um, when you're grieving. So the fact that you all make it so easy um, is really beautiful.
1: Thank you. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, I think, I mean, as a psychologist, I know how hard it is for people to ask for help, especially some populations, men have a very hard time asking. Right. Help. And so if they've lost their wife and they're, they're parenting their children on their own, like it's very hard for them to ask for help. So um, you know uh, populations of color are often um, and, and and underserved individuals who have perhaps had um, struggles with systems of care and, right. and in general we've really worked hard we offer our services in Spanish and, and hope to be able to to um, expand our, our our cultural sensitive culturally sensitive programs over the years too but we we're really trying to like you said reduce any of those barriers. that's part of why it was important for us to move into this new, building, we had not only grown out, outgrown our space, but we had no parking. We had, you know, it was difficult Mm. to get to. Um, and so having a purpose built facility that, um, and we worked really hard to make it still look like a house, like a home, like they're coming to a friend's house versus a sterile clinical environment, which again, reduces some of that, um, that unease, you know, about going in and seeking support, um, but it's filled with natural light. There are play spaces tailored for kids of all ages. An energy room where they can kind of bounce bounce around in a in a yeah. safe way. Um, there's a there's a playhouse built within the house so that they can um, engage in pretend play and act out scenes from their life and and start to master some of what they've experienced, whether it's you know in a healthcare setting or or with the funeral or, and with the loss and and really. Um, integrating this loss into their life and into their family and so art you know sand trays you name it we've got everything built into this facility so that whatever it is that, that the child that the family is needing to help express their grief and then to work um, towards healing and and um, resilience and a strengthened family through this experience is, is, what we're aiming for and, and feel really excited about this new facility and, and what will, it will allow us to do. Like I said, we've served over 12,000 ch- children and caregivers at this point. Um, yeah. we, we know we're just scratching the surface. I mean, that's a, that's a good chunk of the, of the families who are grieving in our community, but we want to be able to reach further, um, not by building more Judy's houses all over. And that's something that we get asked a lot. Like, would you be willing to put a Judy's house here and there and in this state? <laughs> right. And we did, of course, consider the possibility of expanding, but once we you know, used the, the, the band to act, you know, estimate problems and just really get a handle on how many kids there were, what we decided was most important was that we instead create JAG Institute and share that knowledge to empower those communities because, you know, I love the name of your podcast, um, Lizzie, that we waves of change because we really, what we want to do is create social change, right? We want to um, empower communities anywhere um, to be able to support their community in the ways that they need. They know their community best. They know what their capacity is with the CBAM and um, and actually with one of our other initiatives, initiatives, which is actually, speaking of change, it's called the Childhood Bereavement Changemakers, which is also funded by New York Life Foundation and in partnership with the National Alliance for Children's Grief. Wow. We partner with organizations around the country um, by working with them, empowering them with data, um, both from the CEBM and also helping them look at their own data, utilizing that data and evaluation to uh, not only strengthen their programs and, and increase their reach and capacity, but also to raise awareness in their community and with their funders and with their policymakers so that they too, are working in their own communities and states to elevate this issue so that those waves of change, if you will, are are rippling throughout the country. And that's how we decided um, we could be most useful in terms of being the tide that raises all ships, to to use a phrase. But um, So that's been really um, inspiring and um, exciting to to use um, this platform and this organization and this institute to reach other communities um, throughout the country.
0: I love that. And you mentioned Jag Institute. Can you um explain what that is? I think you um, you know, kind of explained it briefly, but go into how um, Jag Institute works.
1: Sure. And and it was interesting. Um, gosh, with nonprofits, you have to be so flexible, right? Um, you right. never know what's coming your way. So Brian and I um, got Judy's house going. We were 27, so we were babies. Wow. We were really didn't even know what we were doing or getting ourselves, in. Um, and actually, I was an, an intern at Children's Hospital at the time when we opened our doors. But what happened was that Brian got traded. He was playing football and he got traded to mm. to Miami um, right after we opened our doors, which was heartbreaking. You know, as nonprofit, you know, we're just getting this nonprofit started and growing, okay. and, and plan to be there. You know, full time. I, I was planning to to really be very involved. Um, in in house, and then we um, had to move. And so, what came out of that was a we shared the leadership. You know, we it really, um, as founders, we've always been really mindful that we have to avoid founder syndrome, as they call it, right? The holding on too tightly and not sharing the leadership and the ownership of an right. So, one thing it did was that it it, it taught us how to, um, you know, have a team of people that are sharing the leadership. Um, but while we were living away from Denver. Um, I was able to start a research initiative in collaboration with the University of Colorado, which I'm on. Um, I both got my PhD from there and, and now on the faculty at the uh, medical school. But um, Louise Silver and my mentor in graduate school took on being the principal investigator for our research initiative. So, because there was so little research in this area, it was exciting to integrate research into our practice and really. Um, again, be able to contribute more broadly to the field's understanding of the needs of of grieving kids and best practices, Mm -hmm. how to support them. So we got that started actually in 2005, um, while we were living away and then when we when we moved back to Colorado. and and I was able to get more involved and take that data and really work with the team to develop our trauma-informed model and um and to really um, beef up the way that we were training and um and providing care and sharing that data. That was um and then I was the, running the organization as CEO for many years. We realized that if we wanted to expand our reach and really have um you know uh, more ability to. Um, to get that knowledge out into the world that we really needed a freestanding institute within our organization. But um, so that was when we established JAG Institute, the Judith and Greasy Institute, um, and kept it tied very closely to the work that we're doing at Judy's house um, and continuing to learn from our families. But again, like expanding out to be able to learn from other communities nationwide and to to share what we're learning more broadly. It's kind of like a a prism of bringing in as much knowledge as we can from all the people who are doing such great work and then sharing it out, um, what we're learning from that aggregation of data. So that's been um, a really gratifying element of the work at Judy's House um, and one that will continue to grow for years to come.
0: I love that. It's such a beautiful way of expanding your impact. Um, you know, just like you said, you know, not necessarily placing Judy's houses across the country, but um, still having that impact um, in such a creative way. I love that. Um, something I wanted to ask you about you know, there's obviously been so many tragic events across the country recently. Um, and I did see on your website that Judy House is addressing, um, you know, those events and speaking to the community about that. Um, can you help describe how? Um, Judy House is helping the community navigate through, you know, the emotions that come after these tragic events?
1: Yes. um, It's it's been, like I said, such a hard few years for so many people. um, Yeah. So many reasons. I mean, the pandemic being such a big part of it, but the social unrest, the racial injustice that has been so clearly, um, we're just also much more aware of the pain and suffering that exists there the again the gun violence the shootings in the schools the world you know climate change if you think about our, our what our kids are facing what what children are growing up in right now um is right. obviously anxiety provoking and there's a lot of grief and loss around the way things used to be and what was lost during the pandemic not not only death losses, but also the opportunities to be with people that we love and care about in, in meaningful ways, and missing opportunities for that connection. So I think you know, first and foremost, we we were we were also impacted by the pandemic, obviously, um, and had to pivot really quickly through telehealth. So that was something that um, we quickly got in place, which was a wonderful way to learn how to reach people in, in far distances. Cause people unfortunately drive long distances to come to Judy's house because there are so few places like this. Mm. But what we learned also through that was that people didn't want to only be through a screen. They really craved that human face-to-face eye-to-eye connection that we provide at Judy's house which you know fueled us you know we were we were in the midst of this 20 million dollar capital campaign to build this 26,000 square foot new <laughs> building during a global pandemic which is of course not easy but it also fueled our fire to do that because mm-hmm. we saw that there was this increased separation and isolation that was amplified by the pandemic and by all of these other factors and the fear that comes with all of those factors And that if we could be a part of the solution of that broader disconnection and struggle that that so many people were experiencing, especially kids, I think, really struggled during this time, that having a safe place like Judy's has to come and connect with others and yes, it's around specific deaths that they've experienced, but more broadly, it's around feeling a sense of community and um, and and feeling cared for. I think that one thing we've learned during this time, and what we both educate our schools around in terms of you know how they wrap around kids and, and show up for them, but parents and and community members how they can be there to listen, you know, most importantly to listen and to care and to really be um, attentive and there for people in their life from the person you meet, you know, that's, that's checking out your groceries for you, who shares with you that they, that their husband recently died. Like, how do you show up for the people in your community, To your next door neighbor, you know, how do you, um, how do you offer concrete help and support when they've had someone die in their life or when they're experiencing tremendous tragedy or adversity, I think that we as a community, as a society, have to really remember those those good old-fashioned human ways that we show up for people. And and we're grateful that we can provide that continuum of of professional and and comprehensive care for children and families and, and that they have that in us. And we want to help our whole community be more present and available and not shy away from asking, you know, how are you doing today? Um, you know, I really would love to bring over um, a dinner for your family. Which night would be the best night for that? You know, really concrete ways to, to be there for each other or what I, I hope that ha- has come out of this time of raised awareness around grief and loss and, and how we can, can be there for each other.
0: I love that. That's so beautiful. I think, um, you know, it's true when someone mentions that they experienced a death. um, I think as a society, we typically don't know how to react, right? It's kind of like how we ask, like, how are you? And we're not expecting a a real (laughs) response. Um, right. We, feel
1: like we have to say fine.
0: Right. And, Even and, you know, if and, and
1: yeah. And if we launch into, well, I'm really not doing well at all. My my you know, my husband died and I'm struggling, how how uncomfortable people get because we're not used to stopping, listening, really caring, really being there. And that's something that I hope that we are getting better at during this time. Again, totally. we gotta look at the silver linings in this this really difficult time we've all been going through. And I hope that that's one of them is that the compassion and empathy um, and the ability to have these hard conversations um, is there. And that that um, through that, more people feel less alone with their grief and confined people who will really really do that for them. Yeah,
0: I love that. That's true. As a society, we need to show up for each other. Um, and yeah, I hope that we are shifting towards that. And I love that Judy's House is you know helping with that. Um, well, I want to, you know, close out by, of course, letting you um, have an opportunity to let our listeners know how they can help Judy's house.
1: Oh, thank you, Lizzie. Well, this, this is helpful just even to raise awareness around the issue. And and, um, for people who want to learn more, please go to our website, judyshouse.org, J-U-D-I-S house.org. There are many, many resources there for, Um, How to talk to a child who is grieving or who's had a death loss. How to support children and families who are grieving, and and really utilizing those the childhood bereavement estimation tool. For instance, if you if you want to be advocating for children and families who are grieving in your community or in your state use those resources, reach out to us if you have questions. If if there's a grief center in your community that you think could benefit from being connected with us and and, and partnering with us, please have them reach out to us. Um, And always there's um, a need for volunteers of many ways. Um, If you're in our area or at other grief centers around the country, everyone is always looking for volunteers who can either um, be a part of the support services for kids you know, we we serve meals to our families, and a lot of folks have really creative ways for the community to wrap around and and um, and be there for kids. Um, we also, like every other nonprofit, um, rely on. Uh, support from, from donors and, um, funders. And so if you have an interest in supporting this work, please look at our website for opportunities to, to get financially. We have a Seeds of Hope campaign right now where, um, you can dedicate a seedling, um, mm-hmm. to our data lines, um, that can honor somebody who has died or somebody that you want to, um, remember or or just be a part of this new um, home for Judy's house and this this mission and this movement towards um, ensuring that no child is alone in grief so please visit our website and reach out with any questions or or opportunities to get involved
0: I love that thank you Brooke well we always end our podcast with some fun rapid fire questions if that's all right sure (laughs) Um, so your favorite place in the world and be as specific as possible.
1: Oh, um, the porch swing on our porch in the mountains where I can curl up and read a book and look for bluebirds that oh. I can, that I can go upstairs and paint because I'm an artist as well. And, and, oh, and i nice. really obsessed with painting bluebirds lately. <laughs> They're oh, so that.
0: that sounds uh, lovely. I want to swing on a porch swing and watch
1: bluebirds. <laughs>
0: Um, <laughs> the last TV show that you watched?
1: Ooh, the last TV show I watched. I'm terrible at watching TV shows, um, <laughs> but my kids had Shark Week on, which um, <laughs> <it> always <laughs> terrifies me. And I was really grateful that we had just gotten back from our beach vacation and that we weren't watching it before the beach vacation. But um, right, fascinating animals. But
0: I <laughs> <laughs> love that. And um, the last book that you read.
1: Oh, I just read The Second Mountain by David Brooks, which um, is a really interesting um, book about finding your second mountain in life, which is a more purpose and purpose-driven and meaningful mountain than often our first mountain has um, in terms of your career. But it was interesting because most of my career has been at Judy's house and working with this mission. So it has been very, very (laughs) purpose-driven. So now I'm looking for that third mountain um, of, of, of how to um, create systems change more broadly for our community and and beyond. But that book was very inspiring to me in terms of um, other, other nonprofits and, um, and organizations and people who have made significant changes you know social change uh, throughout the country and throughout the world and really learning from them and and kind of dreaming about in the second half of my life um what I might devote my energy to
0: yeah that sounds like a really interesting book um one fun fact about you oh
1: fun fact Here it is. <laughs> painter. Um, I was a flautist in high school. I I grew up in a very small town of 3,000 people, a little rural town in in Michigan, Ithaca, Michigan, 3,000 people. Um, But we all had to pitch in and do everything. And so you you had to start on the play and you had to run student council and you had to play in the band and be a cheerleader because everybody (laughs) had to do everything. And so I once was a flautist. I, I, my mom just sent me my flute and I certainly can't play any (laughs) notes. Anymore, but but that was that was my instrument and in band.
0: Oh funny, I love that. Um and then last one, favorite quote. Mm,
1: I actually have a quote right here. I'm very um uh at this point in my life trying to um integrate creativity into every um everything I do and make more time and room for imagination and creativity. And Maya Angelou said you can't use up your creativity. The more you use, the more you have. I love that because I think there's this kind of myth that as we get older, we lose our creativity or um, that nowadays you can look up anything that's already been done on Pinterest, right? right. But if we really um, take time with ourselves and our own imagination, our own creativity, it doesn't even matter if somebody's already done it. It's the, the process and the beauty of of um creating that is um exciting and um uh fulfilling. Um and, and so I just I love that the idea that the more we use it, the more we'll have.
0: That's beautiful. It's an important reminder. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Brooke. This was um so fun speaking with you and learning more about Judy's house.
1: Well, thank you for taking the time, Lizzie. And again, thank you so much for. For shining a light on all the, the wonderful nonprofits that are, um, that are creating change uh, locally and, and nationally and internationally.
0: Of course. Thank you so much for listening to Waves of Change podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Lara. I would love if you would follow or subscribe our podcast or would you leave a rating or review five stars is our favorite that would help others find us. And we'd really appreciate it. If you're active on social media, please follow us at waves of change podcast on Instagram. Even more, if you would share this episode on your stories, that would be wonderful. If you have suggestions or want to recommend an organization I should interview, email us at wavesofchangepod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. Thank you. I'll see you next time.